what I, I want to start working through is really applied belief. So we've been talking for at length for the last, well, since, really since I've been here, about the many things that we believe to be true about God. And these things are really important. They're not just, you know, kind of uh, either things that are just really complex that, you know, we like to kind of think about and, and you know, kind of stretch our intellectual muscles or things like that. That's not what they are. Uh, they're really true things about what God has revealed about himself. But the reason that they're important is because there's another side, right? There are others that don't believe these things to be true about God. And it would be one thing if they just believed those things and they kept quiet and they stayed in their homes and they didn't do anything about it, right? That would be one thing. Um, that would be bad enough. But it's worse that they are persuading people and teaching uh, really a, what amounts to a false religion. And so what I'm, what I'm hoping to do over the next few weeks as we go through Wednesday night Bible studies is really take some of the principles that we've already been uh, building and kind of laying the groundwork for and really show or demonstrate how these things are actually under assault by the various cults and other major world religions that are out there. And that if we don't really seek to understand the God of the Scriptures and really are convinced by the, the Scriptures with what we believe, then we'll be swept away as well. It, it's, it's with great ease that Jehovah's Witness, that Mormons, that many other people evangelize the lost. And for a while, and I don't know if this stat is still true, but um, Southern Baptists at one point were the, the number one converts to Mormonism. Um, and, and part of that, I mean, there's, there's probably lots of reasons there, but, but certainly part of it is a lack of education in, in the pew. We simply in our churches sometimes don't give the answers that people are looking for. And we make it appear as though there are no good answers right? Well, those questions just don't have any answers. And so people go somewhere else to find those answers or somebody, lo and behold, shows up on their doorstep and provides them some answers. How sure are you that he is really God in the flesh? Are you really sure that he is? Well, why don't you read that verse again? What if that verse actually means, and they give you an alternative explanation? And maybe you think to yourself, I never knew that. I never thought about it that way before. Oh, before long, he's right. And now you're going to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or you're going to a Mormon church, or I mean, a, a, a Jehovah's Witness church, or various other places. Right? So it really is important that we not only establish what we believe, but that we're convinced of it, and that we see it for ourselves in the Scriptures. And so um, I, I've gone through this, and, and as far as uh, tonight, what we're going to be talking about is Jehovah's Witness, the Jehovah's Witness cult. And um, I, I want to be clear as to what I, I want to do as we go through these various cults. It's not simply to just enumerate every belief that they have. We'd be here all night. Oh, we'd be here longer than all night. I can't enumerate all the beliefs that we have in one night, right? So there's no way I can do that for them. What I really want to do is, um, is, is help us drill down to the point as quickly as possible. A person shows up on your doorstep, and the question that comes to your mind is, oh no, what do I do, right? <laughs> it's the question that comes to everybody's mind. So they start going on about various doctrines that they believe, or they're trying to win you over to the Lord, and for a while, it seems like they're on the same page as you. Am I the only one that's had this experience? You start talking to them, and they're like, you know, we're, we're Christians too. We believe just like you do. Now, we have some, some differences, yes, yes, but, but really, you should, you should just consider that our way of interpreting. Let me give you a tractor. Let me give you a New World Translation. And for a while, you start to think, maybe there really is no difference. Here's the advice that I would give you, and this is the kind of approach that we're going to be taking as we go through this. Let's cut to the chase. When they're on the doorstep, let's talk about directly, here are the things that you believe that I don't believe. Let's just get those out in the air, 
okay? Let's just get those out in the open. We're not hiding anything. These are the things that you believe about Jesus that I don't believe. Or these are the things you believe about God that I don't believe, that I disagree with. And here's what I do believe, okay? Let's just, let's just say those things. And, and then let's go from there. And, and I know all the while, because I've been convinced of it, because I've been studying in my text that these things are true, I, I believe these so much that unless you're willing to come over to my side, we're just going to be in a standoff, all right? That's probably the best place to be within the first minute of that conversation, right? Because it's not going to go anywhere if it's not. So that's kind of the approach that I really want to take. Now, to get there, there's going to need to be just some brief history about how some of these things came to be in Jehovah's Witness um, religion and before we can really establish some of those truths. So you can see why they believe what they believe. And for Jehovah's Witness, there is uh, the, the beginner of the, the, the cult, let's say, I'm just going to call it a cult, is Charles Taze Russell. Now, what you will find by most Jehovah's Witnesses today, they will say, we don't follow Russell. We don't follow Charles Russell. No one teaches what Charles Russell taught. That's not true, but that's what they'll tell you because they've sort of denounced him and we'll get into why here in a minute because he's crazy. Um, <laughs> that's the long and short of it, okay? Uh, <laughs> he's he's kind of crazy. So most of them will say, we don't follow him, but it's, it's easily searchable. You can see all the things that they believe in comparison to what he believed in there. They're so similar. It's not even, it's not even funny. But he's the original founder. I want to go some, through some of the things that he began doing to help us understand, first of all, really what went wrong. Because in addition to being able to defend our faith but before Jehovah's Witnesses, we also want to be sure that we as a church don't create any more. Does that make sense? All these people, they came out of a church somewhere. I mean, virtually all of them came out of a church somewhere. And they just sort of flew off the reservation. And we want to be sure, to the best of our ability, as much as we teach, as much as we talk, the ways we present the gospel, things like that, we want to be sure that we don't have a lot of these people running off the reservation, right? We want to be sure that there are, there are ways we don't create more Charles Taze Russells. And so you'll see in this an evolution of of Russell as he, as he kind of moves on in life. So he, he started this uh, cult, but at an early age, he rejected the, the doctrine of eternal torment. That was the biggest thing for him, was the doctrine of hell. And he could not understand how a loving God could possibly ever send someone to hell for all of eternity. That was a huge sticking point for him. And today in the Jehovah's Witness cult, it still is. This is what I mean. They still do follow the teachings of Russell. Most of what you find is when these, when these uh, originators begin their, um, the, the cult, they bake into the DNA what they believe. So even if they say, well, we don't follow Russell, we don't quote him anymore, the DNA is, is, uh, of, of Charles Russell is, is baked into the cake, as it were. Does that, does that make sense? Um, so that was one of the things that was the sticking point. It sort of, it sort of was the catalyst that gets him going in a different direction. And in 1870, at the age of 18, think about that for a second. At the age of 18, where were you when you were 18? I know where I was when I was 18. Shouldn't have been leading a Bible study. Uh, <laughs> 1870, he forms a Bible study in Pittsburgh. And he teaches this Bible study. How much theological education do you think he has at 18? Zero. He is, and it's, it's proven, he, he doesn't have that much theological education. Six years later, so he's 24 years old, and that Bible study group has now grown, and they have named him to be pastor of this Bible study group. So here you have a, a young kid, teenager, who, whose brain hasn't fully developed yet, but his hormones are going like this, and he sort of runs off the reservation. He can't, 
understand or comprehend the doctrine of hell. There's nobody there to actually explain it to him or help walk him through. There's just, just people preaching hell but never explaining the doctrine, how we understand why this is a just punishment. So he goes off the radar. He, he starts uh, teaching in his Bible study. Lo and behold, it grows. Obviously, he's not teaching the doctrine of hell, right? So he's, he's removed that from the Bible study altogether. They eventually grow big enough where they're, okay, we need a pastor. And they name this 24-year-old kid pastor. 24-year-old kid who has built his reputation of running away from the church. Interesting. Um, in 1878, so this is, what, was, what, what is this? 1876, so two years later, he had been editor of a small magazine in New York, and he resigns for, you think it's the doctrine of hell? Nope. Now it's the atonement that he has a problem with, atonement of Christ. So he resigns from this magazine because of his views on the atonement, his counter-arguments uh, to the, the atonement. Um, and so then a year later, he, I'll start my own magazine, right? So, so just look at the mentality that's going on here in the kind of the evolution of C.T. Russell as he begins developing really what amounts to the foundations of Jeho- the Jehovah's Witness cult. It begins running away from the church altogether, right, in, in rebellion. It starts in rebellion. Well, I'll start my own Bible study. Eventually, I become the pastor, and, we'll, and then I resign from a magazine. Well, I'll start my own magazine, right? So uh, he starts his own little herald of the morning. Eventually, this becomes the watchtower announcing Jehovah's kingdom. That's the title of it. Uh, in 1884, so this is another five years later, um, the Zion's Watchtower Track Society is incorporated in Pennsylvania. So now we, we really have the beginning foundations of the Jehovah's Witness cult. Um, let's see, 1886. Uh, oh, oh, and by the way, I need to tell you, we, uh, I have all of this typed up in a document. I'm just going to make available online. So if you want to just download it, if you're trying to write down dates and all the stuff that's on the points, just don't, and I'll just, you can just download it. How's that? Um, 1886, um, he publishes the first in a series of seven books entitled The Millennial Dawn. Now, he thinks really highly of, first of all, his own writing ability, but also his theological prowess in writing these books. He, he self-published, I think I, my understanding is that he self-published six of them, and then the last one, which we'll talk about in a minute, was published post, posthumously, um, posthumously. Uh, after, he, after he died. Um, now those are called studies in the scriptures. That's what they'll refer to them now. And they still do cite them from time to time. So there's still some of C.T. Russell left in the Jehovah's Witness. Um, in 1917, this is a year after C.T. Russell's death, um, that seventh book the millennial, in the Millennial Dawn series is published, and this became kind of a big controversy. Obviously, he's been dead for a year and there's a new, uh, a new sheriff in town, J.F. Rutherford, is, has kind of taken over as the second president of what is really the, the, the Watchtower Society. And, well, they don't really like the seventh book, and so there's a split that takes place. The vast majority of the people follow after J.F. Rutherford and leave Russell and his dead body behind, basically, and just kind of forget all about him. And there was a small constituency that still held to the teachings of Russell. They're called the Russellites, and I think they're still around today. I haven't heard from any of them, but uh, I I think they are. Um, And J.F. Rutherford took off, and that eventually became what is now known today as as Jehovah's Witness. They're really following uh, J.F. Rutherford. Is, is kind of their, their own take, but like I said, it's baked into the cake at this point, uh, the, the mentality. You, um, let's keep going. Um, what you start to notice in C.T. Russell um, is this really mistrust of authority. You notice that even in the Jehovah's Witness cult today, there is Again, baked into the cake, a total mistrust of authority. Well, you saw this all the way back when he was 18. He runs away from the, the church altogether, right, and, and rejects the doctrine of, of hell, right? He, he resigns from a magazine because of his views and, well, starts his own magazine. Like, there's a, there's a rejection of authority altogether. Well, now you won't find no Jehovah's Witness one that salutes the flag at all. 
right? There's a rege- total rejection of authority. It's baked into the DNA of the cult. And not only is there a, a mistrust of authority, but there's also, uh, it, it's, it's a, like it's a bad thing to actually be educated. If you've been educated by the authority, well, then you've been corrupted, right? So when it comes to the New World Translation, which we'll talk about in a minute, their own Bible, well, do you think that they're going to listen to Greek and Hebrew scholars talk about what these words mean? Well, absolutely they're not. Baked into the DNA of the religion is a total rejection of authority. Everybody else is out to get you. So what we see is uh, there was a reverend, he's a good guy. Reverend J.J. Ross, he's, on the, he's a good guy, all right? He, um, he publishes a couple pamphlets about C.T. Russell. Back when, this is back when C.T. is alive, 1913. And Russell takes exception to it. He says about Russell that he's an idiot and that he doesn't know uh, Greek from a hole in the ground, right? And so he, he says all these things about him in, this, in these couple of pamphlets that he produces, well, C.T. Russell doesn't stand for that, and so he files a libel suit against the reverend. Worst mistake he could have ever made. Because in a libel suit, I think this would still be the case, but it certainly was back then. In a libel suit, you have to prove that the things that the person said about you are false. Right? So when it comes to his knowledge of Greek, what do you think the defense attorney is going to ask him in the cross-examination? Well, do you know Greek? Well, that cross-examination is actually recorded for us. We have record of it. And here's how it went. The defense attorney says, do you know the Greek alphabet? Russell says, oh, yes, I do know the Greek alphabet. Staunton, the defense attorney, says, can you tell me the correct letters if you see them? Russell, some of them. I might make a mistake on some of them. Staunton, would you tell me the names of those on the top, the page? Page 447 I've got there. Well, I, I, I don't know that I would be able to. That, the stuttering's mine. I'm just imagining. <laughs> Staunton, you can't tell what those letters are? Look at them and see if you know. Russell, well, my way... Uh, he inter- he's interrupted right here, okay? And Staunton says, are you familiar with the Greek language? Russell, no. Now, I've said many times that I trust the translations that we have in front of us. We should trust them. We should read them. We can see God's Word. We've, we've said this about the Bible. When we first started this thing, we built this whole thing on what is the Bible? How do we know that the Bible is true? And we, we talked at length about the Bible being God's Word, that we can trust what we have here in the text. And I really believe that is the case. I don't think you need to know Greek in order to understand the Bible, rightly interpret it, and apply it to your life but we're also not making translations of the text, are we? We're also not changing core doctrines of the text, are we? No. We're seeking in every way to adhere to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. That's what we're trying to do. That's not what he's trying to do. He's overhauling major doctrines of the church, and that's a different matter entirely. Now now that you would need to show your work. Right? Any math teachers in here? No math teachers? Anybody good at math? I'm not good at math. Oh, you're a math. You should have raised your hand. It's math, all right? (laughs) You get into theory and all that, but it's math, all right? Uh, There's a principle I always hated every time they would tell me this is show your work. I'm like, look, calculators have been invented. We don't need to show our work anymore. I can just punch it in, and then there it is, right? I can always, there's never a world in which I won't have a calculator. In my hand, right? It's my theory anyway. Uh, somebody who's not a math brain. But, but the reality is when you're actually doing hard math work, you need to show your work, prove your mastery of the subject. Well, this is the case for C.T. Russell. You're overhauling major core doctrines that have been, del- been talked about for 2,000 years. You better show your work. And here we've got a man that admits under oath, you can't trust me when I'm dealing with the text. That's a different matter entirely. Um, But again, it it appeals to this same idea of of really desiring ignorance. Ignorance is a good thing. And 
a mistrust for any of all the, the man, right? A mistrust for any form of authority. All right. Um, now, in that same libel suit, he also admits to an ignorance of Hebrew and Latin as well. And then there's the question. This is the one that I, I think is actually more important than all that. The question of ordination. Okay? They ask him if he's been ordained. Now, Staunton says, now, you never were ordained by a bishop, a clergyman, presbytery, council, or anybody of, living, of men living. Russell, after a long pause, I love that. After a, long, after a long pause, I never was. Now, why is that a big deal? You tell me. Yeah, by the faith, in the faith, right? Why is ordination a big deal? A lot of times now, it's sort of thrown under the bus. Ordination is a massive deal. It's a huge deal. Uh, for one, it says that there's a body of people that have witnessed your life and your work, that have witnessed your, maybe your teaching, have witnessed your understanding of the scriptures, and they have pronounced you, deemed you worthy to teach. And here is a man who left at 18, rebelled entirely, developed a system of thought, and there never was a church that said, yes, he should be teaching. That's a problem. Again, baked into the DNA. It's baked into the DNA. When you talk to a Jehovah's Witness, if you know one, if one, there's one in your family maybe, you'll see that there is a rejection of education. In general, they don't think education is a very good thing. Test it. You'll see. Your mileage may vary, but that's been my experience. Um, uh, so Russell was unapologetic about how his writings were necessary for biblical understanding, growth, and maturity. I want you to, to listen to this. At, this, is, this is from him. This is from the Watchtower uh, publication when he was writing it. And this is, remember, the studies of the Scriptures is the, the six-volume, seven-volume book that, that he published. This is what he says about it. If the six volumes of uh, Scripture studies, that's the title of the book, are practically the Bible, topically arranged with Bible proof text given, we might not improperly name these volumes the Bible in an arranged form. This is to say they are not mere comments on the Bible. This isn't a commentary. But they are practically the Bible itself. Oh, there's more. Uh, <laughs> furthermore, not only do we find that people cannot see the divine plan in studying the Bible by itself, but we see also that if anyone lays the Scripture studies aside, even after he has used them, after he has become familiar with them, after he has read them for 10 years, if he lays them aside and ignores them and goes to the Bible alone, though he has understood his Bible for 10 years, that, that's the Scripture studies, for 10 years, our experience shows that within two years he goes into the darkness. On the other hand, if he had merely read the scripture studies with their references and had not read a page of the Bible as such, he would be in the light at the end of two years because he would have read the light of the scriptures. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, he, invented, he invented cliff notes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, wait. <laughs> he he will. Oh, he will. And and but this is it, right? He he's saying about a guy that studies the Bible. Well, you don't need to study the Bible. You just need my book. If you have my book, that'll be fine. In fact. If you set my book aside and you go to the Bible, well, you'll be misled in no time. 
I bet you will. <laughs> Misled according to him, right? Um, problematic, heavily problematic, right? You, this is the mentality that's baked into the DNA. There's other things that are necessary for the Bible. We've, we've already talked about this at length. We'll go through this in just a minute. But again, ignorance and mistrust. Now, in 1916, upon uh, Russell's death, Judge Joseph Franklin Rutherford, J.F. Rutherford, took over as leader of the society and began attacking the doctrines of organized religion. So he picks up where, where Russell left off. Rutherford is a dog. I mean, he's, a, he's a, uh, like a bulldog. He is going after it with gusto even more so than Russell. And they said of him that he was not only charismatic, he, he didn't like to have his picture taken. He was kind of refused the limelight. But it, as far as doctrinally, according to the, the Watchtower doctrine, he was uh, a, a bulldog. He was a fighter, all right? So, and he was articulate and he could teach and he was you know, kind of charismatic in front of people and they, people really liked him. And so they, they found him easy to follow. So he picks up and he begins doing exactly the same thing that Russell did in attacking this sort of organized religion. Here's this sort of baked into the DNA is this rejection of authority, mistrust of anything that's been educated in the system. And this, you know, we, we need to follow uh, something else. And so he, he begins doing the same thing. Uh, to this day, though, C.T. Russell has been largely denounced by the society. So again, this is the, they kind of stepped away from Russell, mainly because of the depositions that came against him, but then also because of the book that came out, the seventh volume uh, of the book. His ideology, though, is baked in the DNA of Jehovah's Witness. Now, in 1950, they finally get together this New World Translation. And you'll find that as a Jehovah's Witness comes to your doorstep, they're going to be reading a Bible that's a little bit different than yours. Okay, And I want to go through just a couple of different changes that are really significant that you can point out as, you know, for somebody on your doorstep that you disagree with. Get to that really quickly. But they developed this New World Translation, and it was published. The Translation Committee, though, had no known translators with recognized degrees in Greek or Hebrew exegesis or translation. How well do you think this translation is going to be established? Well, it's not. So there's another deposition that comes uh, where they actually ha are, are questioning uh, the translators of the New World Translation. And they send, the Jehovah's Witness send one of their representatives, uh, Frederick Franz, to the deposition as the representative of the translators. Now, he later became one of the presidents of the Tract Society, but he, he goes at this point as a representation for the Translation Committee, and he is deposed and in the cross-examination, the questioner asked, have you also made yourself familiar with Hebrew? Franz, yes, of course. Uh, so that you have a substantial linguistic apparatus at your command. Yes, for use in my biblical work, Franz says. I think you are able then to read and follow the Bible in Hebrew, Greek, Latin, Spanish, Portuguese, German, and French. Yes, Franz says. Can you yourself translate the fourth verse? of the second chapter of Genesis from the Hebrew? No. That's problematic. That verse happens to be one of the easier quizzes that you get in, uh, in beginning Hebrew. You won't pass beginning Hebrew without being able to translate Genesis 2-4, or 4-2. 2 4 I had said it right the first time. Um, now, let's look at some of the Jehovah's Witness beliefs. So this is what's baked into the cake, all right? So you kind of understand this going in. So what that means, let me, let me back up. What that means, when they stand on your door, at some point in the conversation, there's likely to be the G or H word thrown out there, Greek or Hebrew, right? You need to understand they don't know Greek or Hebrew. They're regurgitating what they've been told. You have to understand that. It's an intimidating word. When somebody says to you, in the Greek, immediately your mind goes to, well, I don't know the Greek. Right? Would have to. They don't know it. They've just been told this. So you just continuing to reiterate what I do believe and where I disagree with you and holding firm on that faith trusting in the people that taught it to you, really just as they're doing, that makes much greater strides than try to argue Greek with them, okay? All right, so 
Jehovah's Witness beliefs. And these aren't all of them. These are simply the ones that I want to point out that are the, the biggest points of contention for us. Jehovah, the Father, is the only true God. Jesus is his firstborn son. He is subject to God. The Father is greater than the Son. Now, when you hear those sentences, you're probably thinking, now some of those sentences aren't too far off from what I've said, right? And you'll probably even note that when they come to your doorstep and they say some of these terms, we believe Jesus is the Son of God. You might even give them a pass and you might say, well, they believe Jesus is the Son of God. Okay, we're saying the same thing. You're not saying the same thing, all right? Now, so this is what they would say. Jehovah, which we would say God the Father, is the one true God, the only true God. Jesus is his firstborn son. Well, we use those termino- that terminology from time to time. They mean something different by it. He's subject to God. Okay, Jesus lived in heaven as a spirit person before he came to earth. He was God's first creation. Okay, we have a problem, big problem. All right, he was first creation. He was God's first creation, and so he is called the firstborn son of God. Well, we see that in our text from time to time, all right? But do you see what they mean? They mean he was created by by God. Is that what you believe? Is that what we believe about Jesus? No, we don't. Um, Jesus is the only son that God created by himself. Jehovah used the pre-human Jesus as his master worker. So God, uh, Jehovah God, creates Jesus, essentially, and then basically turns over all the work to him. So he he basically creates Jesus, and then Jesus creates all things. Now, you're going to see something funny in the New World Translation here in just a minute in regards to this. Um, He created all things in heaven and earth. Uh, The true scriptures, that would be the New World Translation according to them, uh, speak of God's Son, the Word, as a God. All right? I'll show you where they get that in just a minute. He is a mighty God, but not the Almighty God. That's Jehovah. Okay? Look at John 1 1, real quick. Just turn to John 1 1. Because you're probably thinking in your mind, well, John 1 1 1 1 should solve this, right? Real quick. Look at John 1 1. John 1 1. Here's what they do. And you you probably have memorized this, most of you in here. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, tell it to me. All right. Was God. Well, it's plain as day right there. The Word was God. I don't need any other evidence. I can just keep moving on. Here's here's what they do. All right. Here's kind of the, the problem as it shakes out, both in Jehovah's Witness and Mormonism is my understanding. Um, in Greek, there is no indefinite article. So an indefinite article would be a or an. Um, there is a definite article, that would be the. So a, an, and the are the articles, right? Indefinite articles would be a and an. There's no a or an. So the, really the catch is, as you're translating Greek, you need to know when to supply the a and when not to supply the a. Well, they just supply it. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. What does that do? What does that do to our theology? Yeah, Skeeter, say it. Yeah, it makes two gods, right? Doesn't it? So now you have Jesus being a God and Jehovah being the Almighty God. There's reasons why we don't supply an A there which we won't get into tonight. Um, when we start our Greek class, we will. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Maybe one day, right? <laughs> um, uh, Jesus' birth on earth was not an incarnation, okay? To be an incarnation would be God in the flesh at the same time. So he's saying it's not an incarnation, He emptied himself of all things heavenly and spiritual. So he left behind his whole divinity. Everything divine was left behind 
And God's almighty spirit transferred his son's life down to the womb of the Jewish virgin of David's descent. By this miracle, he was born, what was he born? A man. Not fully God, fully man. He was born just a man. Okay? Does that make sense? That's, I mean, you understand what they're saying? I'm not saying do you agree with it. I hope you don't agree with it. <laughs> um, five. Uh, Jesus died and was resurrected by God as a spirit creature. We talked about this last Sunday. How do we believe Jesus rose? Bodily. Okay, that's very important. That word bodily is very important. We believe Jesus rose bodily. They don't believe Jesus rose bodily. They believe he rose as a spirit, always and ever as a spirit, and returned to heaven. The firstborn from the dead was raised from the grave, not a human creature, but a spirit. Kind of a similar deal as five. Uh, seven, Jesus did not take his human body to heaven to be forever a man in heaven. That's not what we believe. We believe that he is, he is incarnate. He's still flesh. He's a glorified man. God raised him to deathless life as a glorious spirit creature. Okay? I don't know what a spirit creature is, but I'll just I'll let that pass. Uh, and then the last, the Holy Spirit is not a person. It's God's active Force. That's a farce, is what that is. Okay. That one right there? Active force. Yeah. Yeah. And they'll go to Genesis 1. God's spirit hovers over the waters of the deep. Is active, the active force. The spirit is the, the creator. The problem is Jesus refers to him as a he. That's a problem. All right. For them. Uh, all right. Here's some distortions that we need to kind of identify. Some distortions that they make in the text um, that are, are really important changes. Now, the, the New World Translation is distorted all over, but these are just some of, some of the kind of really important ones that you can probably drill down on and you can hold up your translation next to New World and say, I, I would rather trust the ESV than the New World Translation. So call me crazy, but if you're going to call me crazy, get off my doorstep. Uh, so <laughs> Colossians 1.16, this is what they say. By means of him, all other things were created in the heavens and upon the earth. Who's him that they're talking about, that Paul's talking about in Colossians 1.16? You remember? Christ. And what does he say? What does he really say? By him, all things were created. Well, well, that's a problem because if you say all things were created, all, by him, all things were created. Well, that would leave out anything that had some sort of beginning that didn't come from his hand. But they would say, well, he has a beginning, right? He was created. That's what they say. So, well, it can't, it can't mean that. What they do is they supply other, they put it in brackets, they supply other, even though other is nowhere in the Greek text. There is a word for other. They, Paul does not use it. He says, by him, all things were created in heavens and earth. So this is a really easy one. If, if you just want to cut to the quick, okay, Shannon, so they come to your door, you just want to cut to the quick. Let's look at Colossians 1.16. We'll just identify the difference between me and you right here in the first 15 seconds. And then we can, we can talk if you want to, but I'm not moving from this position. Here it is. I believe this really says, by means of him or by him, all things were created in the heavens and upon the earth. And, and what the, I believe that means is that anything that has a beginning Jesus is, is due to Jesus' hand. I believe that. Now, you have to supply the word other there because, well, it doesn't occur in the text, but you have to supply it there. That's what those brackets mean is that it's not in the Greek text. You have to supply it because you think that that's what that means, but it, it clearly doesn't, right? Paul didn't write the word other. He could have, but he didn't. So let's just cut to the chase. Here it is, right here. Let's just lay it on the table. And there you go. What do you think? What, what, what they mean by other things? They would say anything but Jesus. So by Jesus, anything was created. Well, except, of course, Jesus. Okay, so he, Jesus didn't create himself. They say God created him. Does that make sense? So they have to supply the word other because if you said all things were created by him, 
then that would mean either he created himself, which how can that happen, or he doesn't have a beginning, right? They would have to admit he doesn't have a beginning, and they can't admit that, right? Because he's one of the created things to them. Go ahead, Skeeter. Well, yeah. Okay. Um, yes, I I would quickly do that. Okay. Here here's the deal: is that uh, um, how do I say this? Trinitar- Trinitarian theology sometimes is really difficult to explain. Okay. Sometimes it really is. And I would say if I talk to a hundred people. 95 of them are, are going to step into a ditch on one side of the aisle or the other and con- either contradict Scripture or not articulate it in the right way. And they're going to push very hard against Trinitarian theology. Show it to me in the Bible, they're going to say, right? And now you're going to be pushed to go, okay, let me just let me iron this out in Scripture really quick, and you're sorting through all the Trinitarian theology that you know, and you're trying to trying to flip to the different pages of Scripture, it's much easier, I think, to just bring up one point of disagreement very easily. I think Jesus is eternal, all right? And that's, that is a piece of Trinitarian theology. Jesus is eternal. So I'm going to just, I'm going to start with that, right? Now, the more confident you are in understanding Trinitarian theology, the easier that is to get into those discussions. I just, I probably wouldn't start there because, honestly, the disagreement is so much simpler than that. <laughs> exactly. That's what I'm saying. And now, I, I, and, and that's on us. Like, w- this is part of the reason why I want to do this on Wednesday night, do these kinds of things on Wednesday night. We need to discover where these texts are. But part of this is also on the, the people in the pew to memorize, right? To begin committing verses to memory, knowing that they're going to show up at my doorstep. And, and as Peter tells us, be ready always to give an account for the hope you have. So we, we need to commit these things to memory and understand them and really know them. And, and really so that we can honestly say, even when no one's knocking at our door, I believe this. I'm convinced of it. I see it in the scriptures for myself, not just because my pastor believes it or because he said it, but because I really do believe it for myself. We have to get to that point where, where we're motivated even at home to memorize these things and to understand them for ourselves. Um, but I think this is a really easy one to just say, look, it just highlights the disagreement between us. I believe Jesus was eternal. And I think you have to supply that word because it doesn't fit your theology, uh, to be honest with you. Um, Here's another one. Matthew 27, 50. Jesus, this is their translation, the New World Translation. Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his breath. The reason that they have to change that is because they don't believe the spirit is eternal, that your spirit goes on to live forever. Uh, So they change it. Um, That's an easy one, I think, to say. Look, I believe the spirit is eternal. To be uh, absent in the body is to be present with the Lord, right? Another one similar to this is Paul in Philippians 1, 21 and 23, he says, For in my case, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Now, if I'm to live on in the flesh, this is uh, a, a fruitage of my work. Yet what I would choose, I do not make known. I'm torn between these two things, for I do desire the releasing and the being with Christ, which is, to be sure, far better. Um, in reality, what he, he really says is the casting off of the body. Like I would, I would much rather to be with the Lord. And he's speaking to the permanence of the soul. Well, they can't have that, so they have to change it to be the releasing. What does that mean? I, I don't know. Chances are they won't be able to explain it to you either. And it says, in reality, uh, this, this verse affirms the permanence of the soul along with 2 Corinthians 5 eight. All right? To be absent the body is to be present with the Lord. Um, now, we have to be sure of what we do believe, all right? So let's kind of go through these. I've put scripture verses here. When you have the document, download the document, or you can print it off, or you know, I, don't, I don't know how else we can get it to you. If you need it printed off, we can do that. Um, but I've, I've enumerated the, the scripture out there beside it as well. And uh, 
I think these speak to each line of this. We believe in one God. All right, so far the terminology is the same. The Father, okay, so this is going to say we believe in one God, and then we're going to enumerate what that God is that we believe in. First, the Father, all right? Almighty, he's the maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, Son of God, begotten of the Father, here's the catch, begotten, not made. All right? That's, that's key. This is what we believe. We believe that Jesus doesn't have a beginning. He is before all things, and, and in him all things hold together. Um, and, and you can trace the verses there, and you can see clearly in Scripture what we believe. He is of one substance with the Father. Remember, we said this back whenever we were talking about Trinitarian theology, the Trinity that we believe in. We believe in not only one God, but he is three persons. He is three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, but he has one essence. And that's kind of hard to think through a lot of times to, and, and really to explain rightly. But we believe that Jesus has the same essence as the Father. Nothing in this world is like that. No two things in this world have the same essence. Right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit all share the same essence. So that Jesus can actually say, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. He can say, I and the Father are one. How can you be one if you're two different people? Or, or, right? How, how can that happen? Well, he says we're three persons, one essence. We share the same essence. All right. Uh, who was incarnate for us. So he actually became flesh. He was fully God, fully man in the flesh. Paul says in Colossians, uh, uh, he, the, in, in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Right? He is God incarnate, God in the flesh. Uh, by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary was made man. So he's fully God and he was made man. It's, it's 100% of both, not 50% of each. He is 100% both. He was crucified also for us. And on the third day, he rose again. We mean bodily there, he rose again, and he ascended into heaven. And then about the Holy Spirit. So we believe in one God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, he's the giver of life. And he proceeds from the Father and the Son. All right. Here's one of the reasons. Um, hang on one second. Let me go to the next step. We also believe in the bodily resurrection of the dead and the life in the world to come. You lay out these for them. This is what I believe. You disagree on every point with them immediately. Everything you've laid out, so long as it's understood between you two, they understand the words you're speaking, you've just disagreed with them on every point of their theology. There's nothing more to talk about so long as you're holding these points of view, right? Um, now, the question is, are you convinced in the scripture that you read of those points? Now, does anybody recognize all of those words in bold up there that I just went through? Does anybody, those sound familiar to anybody? What is it? It's the Nicene Creed, right? How did you know the Nicene Creed? You said it every Sunday. You recognize the words. Has anybody ever heard the Nicene Creed before? Okay. Some, if you grow up in a, a liturgical environment, you'll recognize the Nicene Creed typically because it's recited every Sunday. Do you know why they recite it every Sunday? Well, <laughs> the reason creeds came about... The re yeah, the reason creeds came about is so that we could clearly define our doctrine. That within 30 seconds, we could state everything we believe about God. Like that. That's the reason creeds came about. The reason they're recited every Sunday in some churches is because when you open the door to a Jehovah's Witness, we want you to be able to say, I believe in one God, the Father, <laughs> Almighty Maker of heaven and earth. Believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, right? So that you can just rattle this off without even having to think about it. You've got it memorized, right? 
That's why the Nicene Creed was written. Well, it's not the whole reason why the Nicene Creed was written. The Nicene Creed was really written to refute Arianism. Arianism is a heresy and came around 315 or so, um, taught by Arius. That's why it receives the name Arianism. He taught some very strange things. And so the church started hearing some of his teaching and decided to convene and talk about some of his teaching. And they condemned him a heretic. You want to know what he taught? This is Arianism. I believe in only one God the Father, unbegotten and invisible. God the Father and the Son of God did not always exist together eternally. Is this sounding familiar to you? The Logos, that's Jesus, was a divine being. What was he? Begotten by the Father. Well, he's using the same terms we are. Doesn't he mean the same thing? No, he doesn't. Before the creation of the world. He is a medium through whom everything else was created. Is this sounding familiar? Have you heard this before? I think I've heard this before. And the Son of God is subordinate to God the Father. The Son was rather the very first and most perfect of God's creatures, and He was made God only by the Father's permission and power. Jehovah's Witness has been around for millennia. 300 A.D. So this is 1,700 years ago or more. This is Jehovah's Witness Christology. This is their view of Christ. It's Arianism. It's been around for more than a thousand years. It's look. Satan has no new tricks. He has no new tricks. He has new people. Right? Seventy years, you'll die. Eighty years, ninety years, you'll die. New batch comes along. They're fooled by the same thing because they don't read. Arianism rehashed. So why'd the Nicene Creed come out? To refute Arianism. They saw Arianism. They saw it as a heresy. Let's produce a document. Let's make it a creed. Here's what we believe. Enumerate all the things that we believe that refute Arianism. Here we are as a church. We proclaim as Baptists sometimes, unfortunately. No creed but Christ. Right? I'm sure you've heard that before. No creed but Christ. That's a creed. Right? <laughs> we believe in no creed but Christ. Okay? That's, you could say it that way and it'd be a creed. <laughs> it's asinine. We shoot ourselves in the foot. Because the creeds are meant to help. Sometimes we say, well, creeds, that's, that's a Catholic thing. No, a Catholic creed is a creed, is a Catholic creed. Right? An Orthodox creed is held and believed everywhere, always, and by all. It's important to know it's important to remember. The Nicene Creed is a gift to you and to me. It's not a curse. Now, there's a question that we really have to answer as far as application goes. And I already touched on a little bit of it. First, how did we get here? How did we get to Jehovah's Witness ideology to begin with? This is an important question to answer because this speaks to us as a body, as the church. What's our responsibility? How do we, to the best of our ability, I mean, God's given us wisdom. How do we employ that wisdom at work here in between these walls with the members of this body so that hopefully we don't have a Charles Taze Russell flying out from Emmanuel Baptist Church? We study his word. That's right. We study his word. With the guidance of the Holy Spirit. With the guidance of the Holy Spirit. What do we also do? Charles Taze Russell would say, well, I studied the Bible with, with, the, whole, with the influence of the Holy Spirit too. That's what he would say. Right? Do, is it just the Holy Spirit? Do we just say, I'm out here on my own, on an island, I'm reading my Bible by myself on an island? What do we, what? That's right. Yeah. There's a togetherness that needs to be. You can't be an island all by yourself. You're, that's called easy pickings, right? It's the reason you don't go backpacking by yourself, right? Or you let people know before you go backpacking where you're going to be. You carry one of those trackers with you, you know? Because mountain lions, that's what they do. They look for 
they look for solo hikers, don't they? Don't they? That's what they do. Well, Peter tells us he's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He's looking for the solo hiker. He found one in Charles Taze Russell. Is he going to find you? Well, if you're studying just by yourself, completely devoid of any influence at all, no other Christians around you at all, no pastor that you're submitting to, no uh, solid biblical teaching that you're seeing that people are proving to you in the text. Oh, okay, I see that. I see, are you shown your work? None of that? You picked off. You have to understand that one of the big mistakes that Russell made, I think, is ignoring the authority of the local church. The local church provides a wealth of nourishment for a soul. And Russell went off on his own. It's totally antithetical to what is laid out in the New Testament. Jesus establishes a church, and Paul is very clear in Ephesians 4. He gave shepherds and teachers and pastors to the church for the building up of the body. He's not talking about exercise. He's talking about teaching the word, growing in wisdom and in truth. Another huge issue, promoting leaders before they learn to follow. Leaders cannot lead unless they can follow. That's it. This is the reason Paul says, wait a second, wait a second. Don't make somebody a teacher when they're a young convert. They need to learn how to follow first. They'll get a big head. That's what he says. They'll, they'll, get, they'll become arrogant. They'll get a big head. I think you read enough from Russell tonight, even, that demonstrates that very fact. Here's a hothead rebel just takes off, like, every, like a lot of 18-year-olds do, right? And before long, he's the pastor at 24. We have a responsibility as a church, I think, to admonish one another, correct one another, and when we see one run, pursue. Questions? Comments? Concerns? Go ahead. To be honest, I don't know. I've never heard one answer the question. I've never heard one answer the question. So I, I, I don't know. They probably never heard of it. If they don't like educated people, they, yeah. they've never had it. Yeah. I mean, you know, one, one thing that might be handy for you, especially, Shannon, if you're getting people constantly coming to your door, because once they see that there's some conversation to be had there, they'll come back. Oh, there you go. Um, put it right next to your door. Hang it next to your door. A cheat sheet. Okay, I'm ready for you. <laughs> it's fine. Nobody says you can't have a cheater. Just be sure you got your cheaters. <laughs> Yeah, well, in this, that's essentially what you're doing. Like, so as, as you cut to the quick and you say, here's where we disagree. Now the question is, do you want to believe this, right? At, at the point where I say, look, we disagree over the nature of Christ. I think he had to be fully God so that he could take on our sin. So he could live perfectly, first of all, so that he could actually bear our sin but he had to be fully man so that he could actually align with us to atone for us. Right? I, that had to happen. Both of those things have to be true. And the Bible says that. Now, you need to believe that in order to be saved. And that's where I think the doctrine of hell can come into play. They're obviously not very happy with the doctrine of hell. So it's an important thing to enumerate to, for them. Lay out. Here's what we believe. 
Here's your different. Yeah, right. Um, you know, I, I don't want to be too cynical about this because the Lord can do anything. Typically, when they find somebody prepared, they move on. Just, that's usually the truth. There's too many people out there that are unprepared. You know, and now some of them I've seen have been very nice and will continue to talk, and, and they're quite happy to do that. That's not the norm. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, uh, another time, <laughs> yeah, Timothy. And I th- and, and yeah, and and honestly, as you look through the scriptures that are there with what you believe, as you look through like Colossians one sixteen, okay, as just a quick within thirty seconds, you've identified a text where we disagree. Um, you know, I think that's the importance of showing them. Here, here's what it says in my Bible, and I believe this is true. The, I, I mean, that's it. Look, it's very clear. Even your own authors admit that you have to supply a word there to make it fit in your theology. And it just doesn't work. I mean, right? Jesus is eternal, co-eternal with the Father. And it's very clear in Scripture. The Jews get this very clearly when they tear their robes and they want to stone him for blasphemy. For blasphemy. I'm one with the Father. Oh, that's too much. Um, begotten would be coming from the Father, okay? Um, the best way I've, heard, I've ever heard it articulated was by uh, Jeff Bingham, and he said, um, you are human. You were begotten by humans. The reason that you are human is because you were begotten by humans. A human can't beget something other than human. And what does God beget? I think that summarizes it nicely. I found my biggest challenge one time in talking to them. I don't talk to them very often. I'm never just prepared. I I understood enough to know that their Bible was written different. And she offered me a watchtower and I said, I'll be glad to take it if you'll take this King James Bible. And she refused it. And she'd been a Baptist before. So we got into a conversation about that. And she had a 16-year-old daughter with her. I said, let your daughter read this one. I said, because what you're reading has been translated by a group of men to fit what you believe. She was not accepting of that at all. And I don't think about it. I did point out to her, in, I think it's something in Revelation where, this was many years ago, I think they believe that Jesus is speaking in the book of Revelation. And when he calls himself Alpha and Omega, there's something in there that they either don't accept that or they don't believe. Anyway, I tried to point that out to her. I, I got nowhere pointing yeah. in the scriptures to me, but yeah. yeah. But you know what? That 16 year old was listening to every word I was, she was glued in to me like, right. what am I hearing? I've never heard this before, even though I might have just been glued right. out there. <laughs> yeah. You just, you just never know. And the o- I've only ever been approached one time by a group of Mormons. That was it. I've never been approached by anybody else. And um, they've never come to my door. Not when I, they've come when my wife was there, but never when I was there. I don't know why. And um, do what? Yeah. I'm on the I'm on the list. I don't know about that. Um, but it was I had had just had a long day, and I I was getting the mail, and I just pulled in from school or something. I don't remember. 
And I saw him coming up in their black slacks and their black tie. And I said, nope. And just kept walking. <laughs> I, I, I probably should have said something, but I, I just did, I didn't have the energy that day. <laughs> so <laughs> just kept going. But anyway. Yeah, um, yeah, and, and it's in Second uh, John, I believe, and it's uh, it's certainly in the context of um, people coming to your church. You know, um, don't offer them any encouragement or a cup of cold water. You know, uh, I think it would still apply to your home, though. I, I do. I think it would be. Uh, I don't think it would be advantageous for any of us to, you know, invite them in, encourage them on their way. Well, Godspeed to you. You know, kind of. You know, let me. Oh, are you thirsty? Let me, I don't want you spreading heresy. If you're thirsty, go home. <laughs> to be honest, I, like, I don't want you teaching any of my neighbors this, okay? Because this is heresy. So, you know, I don't want you to lead them to hell, too, you know? Well, I, I think one point that was brought up that stands out in my mind is in, in front of them, before we start the conversation, say, I, I just want, want to pray that the Holy Spirit guides me. Mm-hmm. In our conversation today. Yep. And they're gone right then. And, and they, they really are. I'm just serious. Because to a Jehovah's Witness, you can't pray. Somebody else has to for you. So you can't pray. You can't. You don't have access to God. You ask a Jehovah's Witness on your doorstep to pray with you. They won't. They're gone. What's that? Yeah, and then we got to go. Tom's going to yell at me. Yeah, I think all of that is helpful as long as they stay on the doorstep. Um, I think the most, the most important thing is to separate the two of you first. Here's where we differ. We're always going to differ. Here's why I'm here. That's where you get to other things. Yeah. 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 It's biblical. Go two by two. Um, good question. They're annihilated, is what they would say. Yeah. So, you're not raised bodily, they would say, so. You're... Anyway, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for the many truths that you have given to us in your scriptures, the way you've revealed yourself to us. Lord, we pray that as we encounter people in the world that just believe differently, whether they're Jehovah's Witness or a number of other people, Pray that we would be able to clearly refute their teaching with the Bible. That we would know it well enough, we would believe it, so that we could articulate what we believe to be true. But then, Lord, I pray that you would open many doorways into the souls of these individuals where your truth, your real truth, your revealed truth would penetrate their heart, bring them to their knees, and that we would see them here on Sunday and Wednesday night. Well, we pray that you would do this. We know that there are many going around our neighborhoods, coming to our doorsteps, talking to us. I pray, Lord, that you would give us the boldness, strength, the courage, the memory to articulate what we believe and why. In Jesus' name, amen.